do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. How does the ideal regenerative fund structure look like? In this interview, we tackle this challenge with a regenerative agriculture fund manager, which has raised 800 million across two funds for permanent crops in the last six years. How do they think about the future and how would they structure the ideal regenerative ag fund? Before we get started with today's interview, an important legal message. We are not offering investment advice. The views and opinions expressed during the program are those of the program participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of agriculture capital. Listeners should be cautious that the program participants are not selling or attempting to sell their advisory services to potential investors, rather are expressing the value of sustainable and regenerative farming strategies based upon their experience and opinions. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Agriculture Capital invests in farmland and food processing assets to build consumer-driven, vertically integrated, appropriately scaled, and regenerative businesses that support the planet and the communities in which they operate. They are focused on bringing the needed scale to the regenerative food production. Welcome, Wood Turner and Atish Badu. Hi there. Hi. And to start with a personal question, what brings you to soil and regenerative agriculture? Well, for me, it's a long-standing belief that agriculture is an essential part of how we live and how we live on the planet, frankly, and the need to produce food sustainably, regeneratively, responsibly has never been greater to, than it is today as populations continue to grow and pressures on our food system, pressures on our transportation system, pressures on how we do business and how we live continue to increase. Doing this the right way is absolutely essential. And so this for me started at a very young age and has only amplified in the last several years. We obviously believe at Agriculture Capital that the role of perennial agriculture and permanent crop agriculture in helping reduce atmospheric carbon and sequester significant amounts of carbon in the soil and in plant material and conservation areas is a huge opportunity. And that's a big driver for us. But obviously, the most important thing if you're in the food world, as we are, is the connection between soil and high quality food. If we're not spending time building soil health and creating a, a living soil structure, we're going to be very unhappy with the food that, that we're trying to produce. Atish, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think I approach the challenge of soil health a little bit differently. My interests stem probably more from 
looking at climate change solutions. And I uh, started my career very much in kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, more tech and tech finance. And early in my career, I got very interested in climate change and climate change solutions. Very quickly, that kind of exploration led to agriculture's role in climate change. And kind of in turn, I thought one of the best ways, the most interesting ways to start addressing climate change is affecting ag and and affecting soil health and carbon sequestration through the ag supply chain, especially starting with the soil farm. So while everything that Wood said is incorrect in terms of the food that we want to eat and consume and the effects on the environment, I think I would add the statement, if we want a food supply chain that is also more oriented to helping abate climate change issues, you quickly get to soil health or agronomy practices as two big uh, levers of possible change. And, but that's, I mean, you said, I think twice in that sentence, you quickly get to soil health, etc. I mean, that interest is growing, but I still see many people not making that connection. What triggered that connection for you? As many other people, rightfully so, go into solar, go into distributed energy, go into et cetera, et cetera. What made you see soil as a carbon sink and trees as a permanent crops as a carbon sink, et cetera? Yeah. Which is quite a step from technical world. <laughs> it is indeed. Looking kind of at root causes, right? So if you start with carbon emissions, you very quickly get to agriculture is the second biggest carbon emitter in the world uh, following oil and gas. And then when you start thinking about agriculture and how to affect change and looking at some of their primary causes, you realize a lot of the both problems and opportunities around agricultural role in climate change has to do with soil and how we treat and manage that soil. And I think the thing that is missing as of yet, is clear market mechanisms and signals that tie these together. So it isn't necessarily obvious, and there isn't necessarily market mechanisms that put all of these pieces together, but therein lies a bit of a bet in terms of the long-term opportunity that is ahead of agriculture capital. I was just going to add that I think another way you might take this conversation is that there's a lot of people that are trying to figure out how to produce as much food as we possibly can to meet the growing needs of, of a growing planet. And a lot of those solutions are are landing in kind of vertical agriculture and indoor agriculture. And I'm not going to sit here and be so parochial to assume that the only way to actually do what we need to do is by growing fruits and nuts in the ground and building soil. But you'll, I, you'll be in the right community in the podcast. <laughs> I, I do fundamentally believe that. And I do think there's going to be a role for other types of food production. Absolutely. And I'm not denigrating those in any way at all. But I fundamentally believe that the core of responsible agriculture and certainly regenerative agriculture is growing food in the soil, is a land management philosophy. It's how do we expand responsible practices across as, as much acreage as we possibly can in food production in order to have the biggest impact on how we manage land and the impact that how we manage that land has on the climate, has on water resources and so on. So I just want to reinforce that I do believe some, there's something about soil that to me is fundamental about food. No, no, I agree. And I think there's Victor Friedberg said it nicely that something I'm for sure quoting it wrong, but something I don't see a future where we're feeding nine or 10 billion people where soil isn't 
an important part of the solution, not meaning it's the only part. And I strongly believe there's going to be pieces of vertically farming. There's going to be pieces of, but if you look at the crops we currently farm there or the crops you currently get out of those systems, and if you look at the true input and output costs, it's still tricky, let's say the least. It's not an ideal yet, and it might increase because we get much more efficient LEDs, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the impact you want to have or we want to have in terms of climate and water and also quantity of food, you need to think about a lot of acres or a lot of hectares, wherever you are. And that means you're going to get into tree cropping, means you're getting into broad acre farm. You need to touch a lot of hectares to make a difference because at the end of the day, we need to store a lot of carbon and a lot of water. So I try to focus at least this podcast as much as possible on where the acres and the hectares are. And that comes down to a small number of crops, unfortunately, but we're definitely trying to increase the complexity of that. So could you give a short overview? We've mentioned agriculture capital a few times. I introduced it. Where are you now? Just a, a short glance of what agriculture capital is at the moment. We're talking April 2020. So agriculture capital in 2020, we managed about 20,000 acres of citrus, blueberries, table grapes, and hazelnuts on the west coast of the U.S. in Australia, in the Murray River, sorry, Murray-Darling River Basin. And we're about 18,000 in the U.S. and 2,000 in Australia. We currently have a team of 30 investment professionals. In addition to the 30 investment professionals, we have about 400 full-time employees between California Oregon, Washington State, and Australia, both managing our farms as well as the associated uh, packing and processing assets that, that we have acquired and built as part of those farm operations. Today, we are really focused on a strategy where we're growing in those crop areas foods that people want and increasingly are desiring more fresh and more convenient foods. Doing so in scale, vertically integrating between farm and I'll call it primary processing and managing the operations in a regenerative way. In terms of the publicly available information, in terms of our investment program, we have $800 million U.S. between two funds. Our first fund was a $250 million fund that was raised in 2014. And our second fund is a $550 million U.S. fund. That was raised in 2016, and we're currently uh, investing out of that second fund. I would add to that. I think it's been an interesting several years. Atish and I were early parts of the team around the time that our first fund was coming to a reality. And we now have five plus years of track record with that first fund and then right behind that with the second fund to really begin to see kind of where the biggest opportunities for impact are for us on the regenerative side of things. It's allowed us, I think, to be, we were a little bit in the wilderness, if you will, five or six years ago in trying to advance the conversation with a certain type of investor about what role regenerative practices could play potentially in the performance of our business over time. And now we're beginning to see kind of what those opportunities might look like. And, you know, not all the answers are clear, but we're seeing significant increases across the portfolio in terms of habitat conservation and some of the indicators associated with that, some increases across the portfolio in soil organic matter as an indicator of soil health and other benefits that I think are really exciting. And we've been sort of trying to lean into the research on that to begin to sort of 
help others understand that, hey, there are ecosystem services associated with a lot of these practices that we are actively contributing to and actively beginning to see real economics that we can begin to report on. And I think that's been an important part of what we're doing. In no way is it complete, in no way is it perfect, but it is, and I think we continue to hear this from others. It raises the bar for the rest. It raises the bar. (laughs) We are pushing this conversation in a way that many others haven't been able to at this point. And I get really excited about that. At the same time, I may be um, anticipating a question you're going to ask is sort of what are some of the barriers to getting this done? And I think, and Atish can certainly speak to this, But I think, you know, we have the ability in our two funds to manage resources from our investors, manage capital from our investors over a short period of time, over a 10-year period of time. Is that enough time to be able to enhance the value of our soil, enhance the value of our landscapes through regenerative practices? And we have this conversation as a team all the time. Atisha and I certainly have it together, but we have it with our teammates all the time, our colleagues all the time is... And I think the answer is no, it's not enough time. I mean, I come from businesses that I've been with before joining this team where you're enhancing value through sustainability, through regenerative practices over 25, 30 years of engagement. And I still fundamentally believe that. I believe that long stewardship is absolutely essential to sort of really seeing the value that can come from these kinds of practices. I'll also tell you that I think it's fun and challenging to try to figure out what a more short-term snap I could look like. Of course, because you were able to raise this 800 million because of the 10 year, because of the classical fund structure, because I don't want to assume anything, but I'm imagining many of the institutional investors wouldn't have jumped on board if you would have presented a not typical structure because you were already atypical on the agriculture side. And if you look, I will definitely link it below at your impact report, it's very detailed on soil organic matter. Like you measure that and you report on that on most farms on a farm level, which is something that I don't think most institutional investors have ever seen, especially a number of years ago. So it's that constant dance, which I would love to dive deeper into between what your part of your clients, which are obviously the customers that buy your food, which, which are moving at a certain pace, and your other clients are the institutional investors. Have you seen a change there in terms of as you are approaching that third fund, and maybe even with the second fund already, have you seen something that's moving there that maybe gives you hope that that 10-year maybe is not a a fixed thing that we might be able to change that? Because I think a lot of people will be listening and are thinking, yeah, I know, it's not enough time. Like, it would be ideal. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. The 10-year fund structure is, well, let's say we're always trying to work to better align duration of the assets with an investment vehicle and the structure, as well as with how we create value from an operational standpoint. And a lot of that value, especially if you extend the time horizon, is embedded in the regenerative practices. And when we say value, right, that's not only profit maximization or profit enhancement, but it's also risk reduction. So I think what we try to do is, let's go back to kind of first principles around the assets, right? So these are trees that if managed properly on farms could have lifetimes of several decades and in some cases centuries. We have certain citrus trees that we're currently managing that are over 100 years old in California. And so when you think about that type of time frame or time scale, the issues that really keep you up (laughs) over that period of time, hopefully not every night because it's a long long time to stay up. But the issues that worry folks are not, you know, what's happening with the market this year or what's happening in terms of trade or what are supply chains 
any particular point in time. It's what could systematically or systemically affect the health and the productivity of this asset for a long period of time or over that period of time. And not surprisingly, the, the big concerns and risk on that front tend to be environmental and tend to be social implications in the communities that we deal with. But on the environmental front, it's things like drought, water, climate change, soil health, soil productivity, as uh, soil health being a proxy of, of um, soil productivity or farm productivity. And so when we started, the regenerative age in our, in our presentation or publications to investors was always the second to last page. And now it's actually the second page, the first page just being kind of a, a quick intro. And so within a period of six years, we've seen a sea change in thinking. And I think wow. that's happening for a couple of reasons. So one, I think you just have, I think one, it happens to kind of align with just greater risks being realized in other portfolios, uh, whether it be climate change, water scarcity, labor availability, these issues increasingly are popping up in our every companies reporting to investors and somewhat you know, chicken and egg, right? Which came first, the companies reporting it or the people asking the companies to report on it? But increasingly, you're seeing more demands for transparency and for ESG stewardship or regenerative stewardship, depending on what sector you're talking about, from investors, from the consumers. So I think that's all enhanced the call to action to try to address those issues. And so for our investors, what they're realizing is that a lot of the operational value that we can create in terms of regenerative opportunities have very high paybacks. But 10 years is oftentimes not enough time for that to commercially pencil. And if you think about assets that are going to live several decades at a minimum, why are you underwriting for two years or five years or 10 years? Why is that the horizon? If you were to if you were to building or a bridge or a house, you certainly wouldn't look at the improvements or how you built on it just simply due to an arbitrary two or five or 10 year period of time. That I'm saying if you were building it yourself, right? And so I think increasingly investors are open-minded about some type of evergreen or perpetual vehicle. We have, I think, to our credit, done a good job of talking about it since the very beginning of AC. So even during kind of our first fundraise, we talked about these issues very openly. And our perspective was a little bit counterintuitive in that. So you prepped the mines while selling a 10-year fund. Yeah. Well, not only prepped the mines, but we were really looking for alignment. And we weren't necessarily afraid to lose someone if there wasn't alignment. So we, perhaps at, at a period where we believed we were operating in a mode of, of abundance and capital wasn't the scarcity, that was the limiting constraint. We were really looking and filtering for investors that had a long-term view and had that insight that there was this opportunity to possibly pursue over time. And so over six years, we've kind of cultivated a large database of investors who are at least open-minded about thinking about underwriting and looking at investments with that long-term horizon. The key for us is still proving to them that not only is there an ESG reason to, for this to be undertaken, but that there are financial incentives as well as risk management incentives 
to do so. So another way to, to think about it is we told them we were going to do it or we were contemplating it and we had to win their trust and build our, their confidence in us. And I think over time, we're going to continue to push on this and hopefully one day we can probably not in the too distant future, we'll be able to better align fund structure and fund duration or term with the activities that we think are critical for value creation and better align to the underlying assets that make up our investments. I do think that Atish said something, alluded to something in his comments there that I, I want to just reinforce. And it's really this idea of resilience. And I do think this particular moment, Cohen, is is interesting for all of us for so many reasons. I, I don't want to date your podcast by talking about the fact that this is April 2020. But we feel like we're seeing some evidence to suggest that, you know, the kind of business that we've developed, the kind of business that we've been able to grow with the support of our investors has built into it some degree of resilience for moments like this, where we actually, you know, can manage a full value chain. We can... <laughs> put protocols in place to ensure a high level of employee safety and food safety in the context of what we're providing, not just one moment in time in the value chain or one moment in time in the supply chain, but more of a chain of custody, if you will. And that to me is is resilience. And if I have to think about the COVID-19 moment as, as an analog to anything, I can see that same kind of resilience being part of what we're trying to do on the climate side as well. Are we investing in wild pollinator conservation? Yes, for a variety of reasons. One is that we believe it can enhance returns. One is that we believe it can resonate with consumers. But we also believe that in a world that has more impact from climate change on pollinators, we want to have the most resilient, most adaptive pollinators uh, helping support our business as we possibly can. So I do think that there's something illustrative about this particular moment and, and what it says about our resilience that I think is consistent with what we're trying to do on climate or water. I mean, the idea of trying to, to build up soil organic matter as a means of retaining more water on our farms, for example, as a storage mechanism, frankly, by building our own storage for water on our farms as a way of maintaining, you know, having access to that water when it is available. I mean, there's a misalignment in California, for example, when you when there's a lot of water in December and January, that's not when you need it. <laughs> we need it six or seven months later. So building into that business, you know, the ability to to impound that water and use it later is an important part of that. Whether that's done through ecosystem services or done through a, a piece of infrastructure, they're all it's all part of the same equation. But I just wanted to say I think that resilience piece from where I sit leading our impact efforts, I do believe that resilience is resonating broadly. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, I think we're seeing, and obviously it depends when you're listening to this and where, we're seeing the focus or suddenly the attention that we always obviously had in our bubble on local food systems and on real food systems. And suddenly the rest of the world saw for the first time in their lives an empty shelf in a supermarket, or maybe not for the first time, obviously, again, where you live, but at least in the, we say the Western world, people suddenly realized that eggs don't come from the supermarket and started looking at, okay, who do I know that produces food, which farms locally? And I, I know 
quite a few that have a waiting list of thousands now and that until, let's say, February were struggling for different reasons. Now they're struggling for other reasons. So it's a very interesting point in terms of resilient food systems and regenerative food systems. And of course, we have to see how sticky is this, but it's definitely, I think part of this attention will stay. There's no way we all go back to the same mindlessness, buying and not understanding where it comes from. And I think the risks that come with the food system are also getting painfully clear as we have entered the natural world so far that we created a number or we unleashed a number of things that we that simply brought the whole world to a standstill. So I actually wanted to go back to something you said, Atish, and you said in the, maybe not near distant future, but somewhere in the future, we'll seek a structure that fits better with the impact and also the financial structure we would like to see. But if we could dream for a second, how would that look like? What would be an ideal, if tomorrow morning we wake up and an ideal financial structure would exist, looking at your experience of raising 800 million and putting it to work, still in the process of doing that and all your experience with investors, what would an ideal structure for a second, what would that look like? Yeah, let me maybe start just with level setting about kind of what's unique about this question for permanent crops. So the name kind of already kind of hints at, at some of the, the unique natures. When we plant a new tree... They don't move. No. Yeah, well, in that if they're managed properly, they can be kind of a permanent fixture of a farm or kind of a broader land management landscape. But the point being kind of if we plant a tree, it can take anywhere up to seven years for that tree to reach kind of full maturity. So these, if you think about it from a financial perspective, you're making a large initial development investment with long-term future proceeds, right? And as much as it reaches maturity in year seven, most of the cash flow then comes after a 10-year period. And so from an ideal standpoint, I think a structure that is, I'll call it long-lived in nature, if not evergreen, and that has defined on-ramps and off-ramps for investors to get in and get out kind of predefined periods of time. That way, you kind of satisfy, I'll call it, three different set of stakeholders. There's probably more than the following three, but let's call it the natural lands and, and the greater kind of land management set of stakeholders in that you are better than, you're better able to manage these assets and be stewards of these assets in a way that works within the what nature kind of gives you and, and takes away from you from a year to year. And your your incentive then kind of is to plan for the long term. So that's kind of what's called the natural stakeholders is one. The other set of stakeholders that you know, the structure then benefits are kind of investors. The investors have the ability to continue to invest or continue to own these assets for as long as they choose. But it also has the, the feature of allowing them to exit for their own considerations at any point in time. I think the notion of having capital locked up without an exit is, is um, something that none of us would accept. Not to say that we don't want to be long-term holders of stocks or bonds or farm assets for that matter. But you know, as things change, we, we do want that flexibility. And that's obviously a value. I think that the, in the last set of stakeholders are kind of the people in the communities. And Wood was kind of referencing this in, in a different way a, a moment ago in terms of talking about resiliency. But I think part of the risk 
in investing in agriculture these days has to do with the health of the communities that we work in. So our ability to come and really make a commitment to a community and people within that community that these assets are, those investments, our presence is going to be there for multiple decades is of growing importance in terms of community resiliency, but also that community is, I'll call it investment in us, people, resources, right? The businesses that are able to make those types of commitments and be contributing members of those communities, not only extract, but have the opportunity to give back. And and if you will, there is an opportunity of virtuous cycle. So for example, during this period of COVID, we, over the last couple of years, we implemented, I'll call it not necessarily costlier or cheaper labor practices, but ones that were more focused on creating kind of a permanent workforce, one that is more fully employed on a a time basis, but also kind of have gainful employment over a long period of time. And, you know, those workers' response and the community's response in the period of time where they believe a partner is is at the table and working with them and, and after the same goals, not only in terms of their financial health and their well-being, but their communities and getting healthy and good food to the people in their communities as well to a global audience, it does show up in terms of risk reduction and return. It isn't a straight line. I can't necessarily parse out what portion of our return is due to the goodwill that we've built it up in the communities. But I can tell you for certain when we when you know, the world was shutting down several weeks ago. Our teams kind of pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and were partners with us in trying to figure out what to do and how to keep businesses running and keep the assets running and making sure food is grown, food is picked, and food gets to the destinations. And it sounds crazy, but in, in this current environment, that's not a trivial statement. And it is in large part due to those people that are on the front lines in our business. And we think a lot of their... Not, I don't want to overstate what we've done, but I bet you if you go talk to them, the things that we do matter. And it matters in terms of how they approach their work and how they engage with, uh, with us as a business and with the investors that we represent. One of the things that I take away from what Atish just said as well is sort of a almost a broad or big tent definition, if you will, of regenerative agriculture. You know, you started this conversation by saying what brought us to soil. And we have our own answers for that. To be honest with you, I think when you really are trying to build a, a fully value-creating agricultural business, you have to think about what regeneration means across a number of different areas as well. So sure, it's regenerating soil. It's also regenerating habitat. It's also regenerating local communities. And I think all three of those things, how we're regenerating or rebuilding working landscapes, how we're regenerating natural resources, air, water, soil, and how we're reinforcing the quality of rural agriculture, rural economies are, are all three part of it for us. And you can't have them, to me and, and to a teach and to our team, you can't have a fully baked picture of regenerative agriculture without all those things. I would argue that this work we're trying to do to sort of piece together or put together year-round employment for our teams. is fundamental. And I don't think many people realize how different that is from, because I know many 
farm communities now that are scrambling because the asparagus pickers may not show up or the strawberry pickers may not show up. Correct. It's imperfect for us, but it is very intentional for us how we do that and who we partner with to bring that to fruition. And if you think about the way Atish described our business, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we have the ability to farm the crops we farm. We have track record. Members of our team have track record in those crops. We happen to be operating in places where supply chains are very efficient for those kinds of crops. So it's great for that purpose. There's access to global markets from where we are. There's all these different pieces that are great. But another thing that I want to bring to your attention is if you think about the beginning of the year, January to March or, or April, we've got California citrus. Then we move into California blueberries. Then we move into Oregon blueberries. Then we move into Oregon hazelnuts. Then we move into California table grapes over the course of a calendar year. And that's, you know, some in our business may argue that but I don't think it is. I actually think it's, it's essential to how we think about synergies that exist across the business, whether it be labor, whether it be water, whether it be equipment, whether it be these other pieces that actually help build a truly re- resilient system that doesn't always get hammered when there's some blip in the when there's some blip in the time horizon. So I don't want to overstate that, but I do think there's a lot to think about there and I think a lot about that should be reassuring to investors about how broadly we're thinking about that diversification. I think it it comes down to a discussion we as society need to to have not only on the food system but definitely on the food system like how far can you push an efficient system or how far can you push a system for efficiency? And when does it start to become very risky when shocks happen, which we are now in living in a world where shocks constantly happen, either weather or other things. And the fact that you can still ship grapes or you can still ship citrus uh, compared to, to neighbors that, that, are, that can't or to other portfolio pieces uh, of, of investors that simply are completely blocked that's going to make the difference at the end of the year to an okay result, to a good result, or to not okay at all. And I think the push for efficiency and for supply chains that were managed very, very well when everything goes well, it's perfect until stuff doesn't go well anymore. And we have to realize that it can come from anywhere and it might be weather and it might be something else, but these shocks are not going to go away. And I think we, especially in important and key areas like food, like healthcare issues, we need to be thinking very differently about efficiency and effectiveness because you want to have access to these things because it's not that you can wait two months for something because we still need to eat. So I think there's there's going to be a discussion, but obviously it sort of collides with our efficient investment thinking as well. So it's going to be a very interesting period when everything slowly, and again, we're in April 2020, so we're still thinking we're going to slowly reopen. I don't know if they were going to look back at this podcast and think that never happened. But as we're slowly probably going to reopen, we're going to think about efficiencies and we're going to think about, I think, food systems very differently, or I hope at least, because this should be a wake-up call for a lot more shocks that are, as we're all looking into climate change, are on the horizon. So I want to end, I want to be conscious of your time because I know you have other things to do. I want to end with, I say one final question, always, which never is the case. I want to end with two final questions. If you could change one thing overnight, so we wake up tomorrow, I already asked it more specifically about a fund structure, but let's take it broader into regenerative agriculture and food. If you have a magic wand, and I want to ask both of you the question, and if you get one thing could be changed tomorrow, what would that be? Yeah, let me start. So uh, it's actually simple, but uh, if I was king for the day, I'd create a kind of a graduated or progressive tax system that lowers the tax for long duration uh, for holds to zero. So other way to state that, maybe the better way to state that is 
one, a tax system that would incentivize people to hold for longer periods of time and decrease the tax for the longer you held something down to zero. And would? Well, assuming that I can have two things. I mean, you're key for the day, so I mean, I, I'm not deciding anymore. <laughs> I would say uh, a robust and active market for carbon that would incentivize regenerative practices at a multiple, a multitude of scales. That would be amazing to be able to turn that on today. And right now it's too hard. We're scrambling, we're struggling too hard to get to a place where that actually is meaningful. But secondly, I would say I have gotten to the point where I am absolutely done with this dichotomy that people want to create between small growers, small family farms, and larger producers. We do not believe in that dichotomy. We actually believe that the only way to do this in a meaningful way is to build healthy ecosystems that involve producers at a number of scales who are incentivized, inclined, motivated to work with each other in a variety of ways. I mean, I see people calling me today saying we work with small growers or medium-sized growers who are really struggling right now trying to figure out how to get their product to market. There should be easier ways for those people to work with folks like us to be able to help them with packing or help them with shipping or help them with marketing. But right now, there is a split that exists in the food system. And I would argue that it largely comes from the smaller side of the equation where they look at large growers, large producers, and, and put labels on groups like us that I think are completely inappropriate and out of sync with sort of what the reality is. We want to, going back to my comment about land management and soil and doing this at a scale that really matters, we want to actually get to a place where there's a lot more land that is managed to the ideal degree that a small grower would bring to their own family farm. We believe we have the ability to do that at a scale that we haven't been able to see before. And I think that's something that we all should think about in building truly resilient, connected communities of producers and growers. So I'd like to see that conflict go away. And here comes my final question. Might open another box of Pandora, but what are your plans in terms of fundraising, your ideas for the rest of the year? We're April 2020, as we said, you are thinking, considering, or were at least a third fund. What is your thinking there? Maybe I'll start on that one, Cohen, and let Atish finish. But I would say, you know, I get excited about, you and I have talked in other contexts about better ways to sort of bring farms and operations like we have to life for investors who may not be able to travel as well, who may have a difficult time trying to figure out what to do in this particular context. How can we bring our operations to life in a way that actually capitalizes or mimics some of what we would normally do and getting someone out to fill the soil or be on the ground. I think that's exciting. I would just say something very simple here. We want to continue to tell this story. We want to be able to have as much inbound questions and comments and engagement from people who are interested in these kinds of ideas to help us advance what we're trying to do. So continue to tell the story and do it in more creative and meaningful and post-COVID ways that we possibly can. But Atish is on the front lines of that, so I'll, I'll let him finish. Yeah, and appreciate the question. So I'll, I'll quickly say due to securities regulations in many parts of the world, we can't get into many details in terms of what our plans were and, and what they will be. But let me, of course. let me mention maybe two or three kind of interesting topics that we hope to explore and, and you know, maybe a, a year or, or a year and a half from now, come back and do a follow-up and, and kind of tell you how things went with, with some of these topics. So one, I'm very curious to see how people internalize risk-regenerative environmental issues 
past this COVID period. That is not only just food system and supply chain resiliency, but kind of broader environmental resiliency. Is this the wake up call, right? That that kind of breaks the the camel back in terms of really motivating more interest. So I'm, I'm just on a human level, I'm actually very curious how people internalize risk and opportunity after this period of time. Aside from the maybe more heavy kind of topics, I'm also actually very interested to see kind of the practical implementation. I think 2020 was going to be a pivotal year in terms of ESG regulation and reporting in Europe. And we're very curious, we can, we can already share that the amount of inbound interest from Europe has been amazing over the whole history of AC, but in particular, in particular the last 12 months, end of last year and beginning of this year, before other, other issues obviously took our attention onto other topics. So I'm very curious to see how Europe implements some of the stated changes that have been in the works for a couple of years. I think the last thing I'm curious to see is how do investment opportunities change and how do we fit in that landscape? Not due to a COVID kind of COVID trigger, but kind of more broadly, I think the interest from individual investors and family offices and institutions globally have just been increasing. And there's nothing to say that that trend isn't going to continue to increase. I think the thing that we are interested in seeing is how does that change behavior for investment managers? How does it change the products that are available to the average investor? We're shocked that on a daily basis, we're getting emails from just individual investors who have somehow found us on their own and say, you know, these are the things that I want to be investing in, the things that you're doing. How do you invest? Now, unfortunately, we don't have that consumer offering just given for a number of different reasons. But if that interest is there and just based on data and inbound interest, I can tell you that interest is there and increasing. How is that really going to change what investment products are available to us on a daily basis and what that means in terms of how do large asset managers and fund managers think about what they're doing? I'm always optimistic about where consumers can take us over the long term. And I think here there's a lot to be hopeful for, especially in terms of the next generations coming up, because they don't see the distinction. They just see this as investing, right? And all investing is going to have this embedded in what they do. Otherwise, they're not going to have those individuals as customers. So those are the three things that are, I'm really curious to see how they, they shake out for us as we kind of go to our next steps over the next 12 to 24 months and is taking us to interesting places in terms of discussions. Perfect. Thank you both so much. I want to make sure we end more or less on time, which we are doing. And uh, thank you for the first time. I don't think it's going to be the last time we're going to talk. I hope to unpack many more of these pieces as you're continuing your journey. Thank you so much for your time and have a great day. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.